Good afternoon, friends, and thank you for another warm welcome. Please join me as we pray. Father, we thank you for the the glory of God that we see in the face of Jesus, in the gospel of Jesus, the, the good news and the glad tidings of our rescue in Jesus. And we ask again that some of the goodness of it would sink down into our souls, that you'd plant it, that it could bear fruit. And that we would show it in our lips and in our lives. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. 1971, Walker Percy wrote a really strange, eclectic, but wonderful book, Love in the Ruins. It was subtitled, Adventures of a Bad Catholic at a time near the end of the world. My father's side were Catholic. They were all bad. I was waiting for them to appear in the novel. They never showed up. But maybe, maybe some of your relatives are in there as well. I don't know. It's set sometime in the near future, this book. And America has become fragmented. There's fragmentation between husbands and wives. There's fragmentation between fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. There's even, there's even an internal fragmentation in the main character. His name is Tom Moore. And the source of Tom's fragmentation, the reason for his internal division that, that causes him an enormous amount of anxiety and fear and sorrow is his love. It's not that he lacks love. But that his love, as the title suggests, you see, it's in, it's in ruins. It's misdirected. It doesn't work properly. It's for all the wrong things. In Tom's own words, he put it like this. I believe in God and that whole business, but I love women the best. And music and science next. And whiskey after that. God forth and my fellow man hardly at all. This is how Percy uses Tom in the book. Tom's misdirected love helps us understand the reason that that there's fragmentation more broadly in the neighborhoods, in the cities, and in the country. A disordered love drives things apart. When love is in the ruins, humans are repelled from one another. When love is in the ruins, humans are repelled from themselves. And tragically, when love's in the ruins, they're repelled even from God. And so you, you need a remedy for this. What's the remedy? Well, if, if ruined love brings about division... You need a restoration of love to bring about unity. And and that's what we really need to find. But this new restored love, it can't be like the one we had. It can't be fragile. It can't be vulnerable. We can't put our trust in a kind of love that can be ruined all over again. It needs to be more than that. So we need an invulnerable and a hard-wearing, an unconquerable love. If you were here yesterday, you heard some things about the love of God, how it can be known, what needs it meets in the human heart. And I want to say a little bit more about the love of God today, as you might have guessed, why we need it, how it works, where to find it. Take a snapshot of a conversation with a man named Nicodemus and Jesus. It's in John chapter 3. You can follow along if you like. I'm sure you have few Bibles. Uh, I'm going to pick it up at verse 14, this conversation. And uh, like I 
said, you can always follow along if you like. Here's just an introduction since we are picking up midway in this conversation. Nicodemus has come to Jesus at night so as not to be seen much like today. Jesus is a controversial and polarizing figure. He was the same back then. Nicodemus is hedging his bets. He comes at night. He doesn't want to be seen by Jesus in public, but he is intrigued by him. And he begins the conversation with a compliment. Rabbi, you know, we know there's something special about you. That's what he says to Jesus. Nobody could do the things that you do unless... They're from God, but Jesus won't be flattered. He, he immediately pushes the conversation to first order things. Jesus insists something has to happen in Nicodemus. And what he insists must happen is that Nicodemus must be born again. What in the world is he talking about? Nicodemus doesn't know. He's clearly confused by it. But we get a clue of what Jesus was talking about if we keep reading. At verse 14, Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is alluding to a really strange story. In the life of Moses, recorded in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, it's uh, in the story, the newly freed people of God, they're grumbling against God. Some of them are even saying, wouldn't it be better if we went back to Egypt, be slaves again, but at least we'd have food. And because of their grumbling, a plague of serpents comes upon them. And if if the serpent bites them, they die. And so God instructs Moses to make a bronze serpent, lift it up on a staff, and those who look upon the serpent are healed. It's a strange story. I imagine it'd make a lot more sense to an ancient person than it makes to us now. Some have noted an ancient belief common in that part of the world that to make an image of a dangerous creature could annul its power. Others have suggested that the serpents are representative of Asclepius' staff with the single serpent wrapped around it, or the caduceus of Hermes with his two serpents. No doubt you've seen those on the sides of ambulances or at hospitals, but the honest answer is the mystery. We don't really need to solve the mystery, though, to see the point that Jesus is making. His point is simple enough. The Israelites needed healing, and the healing came about by looking on what had been lifted up. And Jesus is saying, you need healing too. And your healing is only going to come when you look on what will be lifted up. And what's going to be lifted up, he says, is me. What exactly does Nicodemus need healing for? Well, simply put, Nicodemus needs healing for sin. Jesus' insistence that Nicodemus must be born again lets you know the extent to which this condition has sunk into Nicodemus's life and deformed his character. Jesus is saying, we've got to start over, essentially. You talk about sin like that these days, and you take it as seriously as that these days, I think people will probably think you're either tragically pessimistic or hopelessly backwards. There's a theology student studying at Boston University in 1955 who thought the exact same thing, by the way. His name was Martin Luther King Jr., And he participated in a series in the Christian century, very famous series, still going on today. It's called How I Changed My Mind. And King wrote about what he changed his mind on. And I want you to hear what he changed his mind on. I was more optimistic about the human condition than I am now, he says. But I observed the tragedies of history and man's shameful inclination to choose the low road. 
The more I came to see the depths and the strength of sin, I came to recognize the complexity of man's social involvement and the glaring reality of collective evil. It's not hopelessly naive. It's not backwards. It's insightful. King began to confront the strength and the power of racism in the Deep South, and he realized what he was seeing didn't really square up with an overly optimistic portrait of what the goodness of man is. Nor could it be excused by blaming biological imperatives. There's something deeper at work. What King saw in the Deep South, of which I am a product of, and many of you are a product of, what Percy described in his novel was the strength and the power of sin, which exists, by the way, outside of the Deep South. And we see what it does. It ruins love. It ruins love between races. It ruins love between neighbors. It ruins love between husbands and wives, between fathers and sons, between mothers and daughters. The condition of sin ruins everything. And it disperses people and drives them from one another. Sin is a corrosive agent on the chain that anchors the soul to God and the soul of man to one another. So we're, we're left under sin with this depleted and ruined humanity. So now we get a better sense of what Jesus meant when, when he said we must be born again. We're in the ruins and we have to be rebuilt. The the chain has been broken. It needs to be recast. The soul is sick. It must be made well. And now understanding it, we're, we're better prepared to come to the means of our reconstruction. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that everyone who looked on him could be made well, so must the sun be lifted up so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Jesus used this phrase, lift it up. He used it three times in the Gospel of John. He uses it here again in chapter 8 and again in chapter 12. It's chapter 12, I think, that gives us the, the clearest indication of how the lifting up of Jesus upon the cross brings about this healing that we desperately need. When I'm lifted up, he says... When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw people to myself. How does the lifting up of Jesus on the cross do that? And how does such a thing begin to rebuild the, the ruined temples of love in the deep recesses of the soul? That's, that's what you need to ask. I read a book by Graham Greene. Most of the time, I don't like him so much. But this one I did. It's called The Power and the Glory. Set in old Mexico. Socialists have taken over the country. They've outlawed Christianity. Priests are arrested and executed. Or they're forced to renounce their vows and marry. Green's story is about the last priest in Mexico. He's, he's the last holdout. He's an, he's an outlaw priest. And that might make you think he's a courageous, faithful, holy man. But, but he's not. He's a drunk Never give him a name. They just call him the whiskey priest. And he's a vow breaker. You see, he has a child out of wedlock. And he feels that because of his sins, he's forsaken of God. And this is the great temptation for for big sinners, right? The temptation is that, that our sin 
can ruin God's love for us. If our love can be ruined, surely his can as well. And surely even he has a tipping point. And the whiskey priest, the power and the glory, thinks he has, he's hit God's tipping point. And the love of God towards him is ruined. That's what he thinks anyway. Even though he thinks this, he, he continues to share Christ with people. He continues to hear confession. He continues to administer communion. Eventually, he's actually arrested attempting to share Christ with a bandit who turns him into the authorities. On the night before, he's executed. And he is. He's executed. He has a dream. And I want to read the dream to you. He dreamed he was sitting at a cafe table in front of the high altar at the cathedral. About six dishes were spread before him, and he was eating hungrily. There was a smell of incense and an odd sense of elation. The dishes, like all food and dreams, did not taste like very much. But he had a sense that when he had finished, he would have the best dish of all. What's he dreaming of? He's dreaming dreaming of the banquet table, isn't he? He's dreaming of the banquet table of the Lamb, the end of all things. That's what he's dreaming of. And he's finished his banquet meal. And we're told there's one dish left. And he says it's the best dish of all. And as the dream unfolds, it becomes clear that the best dish of all, the last course to be offered, is God himself. God himself is going to offer himself to the whiskey priest. And the reader who has suffered through this book with this weak and fallible and sinful man, who, if we're honest, is, is way too much like us, learns a very powerful truth. God's love for the whiskey priest was not conquered by his sins after all. God's love was not ruined for this man because of his sin. God has been waiting for the whiskey priest his whole life and is ready to give himself completely and fully over to him. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he gives his life for sinners and we learn something about the kind of love with which God has loved this kind of world. Our love might be in ruins, but God's love has not been ruined. God's love for us has not been ruined by our sin, nor by our lack of commitment. It has not been ruined by our weak commitments. God's love for us has not been ruined by our betrayals. It's not been ruined by our deceit. In a world where love is in the ruins, at the cross, we meet a God who would rather be ruined himself then ruin his love. At the cross, the love of God stands unconquered by your best efforts to ruin it. And at the cross, the refugees of ruined love are drawn to the sanctuary of God's unchangeable, unconquerable, unruinable love. And at the cross, those in the ruins are rebuilt by God's own hands that bear the marks of his own unconquered love. 
And slowly over time, they learned to turn towards others with the same love with which God had turned towards them. And God has promised that as Jesus is lifted up and as refugees take sanctuary under the banner of his love, God has promised brick by brick his unconquerable love will rebuild this love-ruined world. But it begins, you see, it begins with love-ruined people finding shelter in the unruinable love of which you must be invited back to every day and every minute of your life. That's the great discipline of the Christian faith. And it's the great invitation, not just to you, but for the whole world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we take refuge in this love of God that has not been ruined and has not grown weary, that for 2,000 years has, has knocked upon the doors of human hearts. And we pray we would enjoy it and that it would flow forth from us. In Jesus' name, amen.